Oh God, we cannot comprehend that divine mystery of which we have sung. It is beyond the pale of our understanding. But Holy Father, we can experience it. And even as we go to Holy Scripture now, may the teaching of Scripture call us to that experience. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I received an email this week from a young pastor out west who asked, How do you know whether to take on something big like the Da Vinci Code from the pulpit? My reply to him was, It's true. The pulpit should not be obligated to seismic cultural events, but neither should it be oblivious to them, particularly when you have this thunderstorm of media attention over Jesus Christ. Put the book cover back on the screen for you. Dan Brown's mega global bestseller for the last three years, by the way has changed the conversation in not only the West, but also the East. I gave you the numbers last week. Let me repeat them. Forty million hard copies in print of this book. Six million paperbacks in print. And as I mentioned last week, the paperback setting now a new record for the highest weekly sales of any paperback in history. But let me give you another stat. I just got this this last week. I subscribe to Christian dem demographer George Barna's e-letter. It's called the Barna Update. And in this e-letter, I learned that this book has sold more copies than any other fictional work in U.S. history. Now, let me give you some numbers. According to Barna's research, the Da Vinci Code has been read cover to cover. I mean, the whole nine yards, it has been read by roughly 45 million American adults. That's one out of every five in the U.S. adult population. 20% of American adults have read the Da Vinci Code. Leading Barna to conclude, it, this book, is the most, and I'm quoting now, the most widely read book with a spiritual theme other than the Bible to have penetrated American homes, end quote. We're talking, uh, ladies and gentlemen, when you factor in, by the way, when you factor in just yesterday's release by Hollywood, overhyped, and according to some reviews that I've read, apparently also overrated, but they did release it yesterday, the Da Vinci Code on the big silver screen. When you factor that reality, 3,735 theaters across the nation began showing it yesterday. When you factor that reality in, I'm telling you what, you have the makings of a huge of a seismic cultural event. Which is why today we plunge into part two of our little mini-series and we're calling it The Women in Jesus' Life. Last week, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Today, Mary called the Magdalene. Why would we want to focus on Mary called the Magdalene? Here's why. Because of Dan Brown's stunning assertion that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and fathered a daughter whose blood descendants are still among us today. I want to read to you a summation. 
Let me share with you a summation of the, of the major storyline from uh, the Da Vinci Code. And I, I'm getting it from a delightful little book. Let me just hold the book up. This book, if you want to go deeper into what we're sharing today, just get this book. It's entitled Exploring the Da Vinci Code. It's by Lee Strobel and Gary Poole. Zondervan puts it out. It's 2006. Brand new little book, under $5. If you want to continue to just go a little bit deeper, then uh, we'll have the time for today. Highly recommend the book. Let me, uh, let me just read a summation. So they, here's the wrap. I'll put the words on the screen and you'll see them in a moment in your study guide as well. If true, okay, here's what they're writing now. If true, the book's assertions are nothing less than breathtaking. Jesus, okay, here come the claims now. Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God, but was actually deified nearly 300 years later by Emperor Constantine for his own nefarious purposes. Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, who bore his child. Jesus wanted Mary Magdalene to lead his church, but she was forced out by power-hungry men and demonized as a prostitute. And the four Gospels in the Bible, the book claims, are essentially fabrications designed to seal this masculine power grab for the rest of history. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the gospel according to Dan Brown's fiction. What I want to do for the next few moments, you and I together, is wonder out loud, is there any way a Christian can intelligently respond to these assertions? Look, it. if you have a secular friend, you have a secular, uh, secular colleague on the job, you have a secular neighbor, it is quite obvious now in the flow of this book's sales, it is quite obvious now that people are concluding there must be some semblance of truth to all this. And if so, I always had a suspicion about, about you Christians. How can you intelligently respond to questions that are going to be raised on the basis of reading or watching The Da Vinci Code? Would you take out your brand new study guide today? And I'd like to give you just, just a, a bare little outline of notes that you can jot down and keep with you. This study guide, I hope, will be a keeper. And so if you didn't get your bulletin today, hold your hand up, or several of you came under one bulletin, hold your hand up, and our ushers will make sure that you get a study guide now. I want to make sure everybody gets a study guide who would like to have one. And those of you who are watching on television, let me put the website on the screen for you. You can get this same study guide if you go to our website. There it is on the screen, www.pmchurch.tv. Go to that website and click onto this little mini-series, The Women in Jesus' Life. Click there, and you want to go to part two, The Da Vinci Code, part two. And then you'll get your study guide. You'll see it. You can't miss it when you go there. I want to make sure. Oh, and by the way, let me just give a plug to the rest of you. If what we share today is beneficial for you, if it's helpful in any way, and you would like a friend to kind of review what we've had a chance to go through here, all you have to do is go to that website yourself. Tell your friend about the website. Tell them about the title. Click, 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 click. Tell them to click study guide. The entire message will be there. You can download it onto your MP3 player and listen to it at your leisure. And we're just setting up video streaming. And so eventually this summer, this will be on video streaming as well. You get all the, uh, you get the PowerPoint uh, screens as well. All right. So let's explore together now. Just a few minutes together. Let's raise five questions. Count them. One, two, three, four, five. Five questions about the veracity of Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. Ready to go? Let's go. Question number one. Was Mary Magdalene Jesus' wife? Now, what I'd like to share with you for the next moment are all the New Testament references to Mary Magdalene. We're not going to look them up, so relax. But you have them all there in your study guide. And I'm going to fire through these in rapid-fire sequence so that uh, you'll fill in a blank or two. Let's go. Let's look at seven pieces of biblical evidence about Mary Magdalene. Piece number one. 
along with the other women, she accompanied Jesus. So fill in woman, or women rather, fill that in. And then I do want to look this text up. So I'll put the, we'll put the words on the screen for you. This is Luke 8, verses 1 through 3. And uh, we'll be dominantly in the New International today. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve... And who are those twelve? Those are the disciples. The twelve were with him. Good. And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. So she's one of them. We know another by name. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. So many, I'm not going to name them, Luke says. Now notice this line here. I want the women in this who are watching or listening right now to be affirmed with this line. These women were helping to support Jesus and the twelve out of their own means. Christ was financed. He was financed by women who shared the ministry with him. I tell you what. Those of you who wonder, because of my gender, do I have a place in Jesus' strategic ministry for this hour in human history? The answer is absolutely and an unqualified yes, but of course. Even the Gospels tell us they formed a nucleus in Christ's ministry band. Okay? So, number one, what do we know about Mary Magdalene? We know know that she was along with other women accompanying Jesus. Here comes number two. What do we know about her? Jesus cast seven demons from her. We, we, We do know that. We just read it. Seven demons. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Uh, number three, what do we know about her? We know, according to Matthew 15, 39, that she may have lived in Magdala. Fill that in, please. Magdala for a while. Thus, the epithet Magdalene to distinguish her from the other Marys. Because as we noted last week, there are a whole lot of Marys in the New Testament. It was a very common name. Maria in the, uh, in the Greek. Some of you are privileged to have that same name. Okay, there's Matthew 15:39, And Jesus sent away the multitude and took a ship, and he came to the coast of Magdala. Christ made a journey to Magdala. All right? Let's go to piece number four. Fill it in, please. She, what else do we know about her? She was at the cross. We knew that from last week, but I want to remind you of it. She was at the cross. In fact, let's put John 19, 25 up there. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, that would be Mary, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Three Marys at the cross. Same time, same place. There they are. Mary Magdalene is at the cross. Jot this down for point number five. She was at the tomb. You've got Matthew 28, Mark 16, John 20. All those references, by the way, those of you watching on TV, all the references are in the study guide, so you get it all. Just click on study guide, print it off, you'll have the whole, you'll have all the material. And if you don't get to the study guide now, the answers are at the bottom of the study guide. You won't have any problem with it. Okay, so she was at the tomb. Point number six. The New Testament tells us she was the first person to whom Jesus appeared after his resurrection. The first. And finally, point number seven. There are all the references. She was the first to proclaim the good news of the risen Savior. He used a woman. The woman, this woman, was the first to be a herald of the evangel, the good news that Jesus is indeed our Savior and He has conquered death on our behalf. Hallelujah and amen. And it came from a woman. All right? There they are, ladies and gentlemen. All the biblical references to Mary Magdalene. Jot this down. There are no other gospel or New Testament references. And why is that important? It's important because of the suppositions that some people make, Dan Brown being the chief uh, protagonist right here, about Mary Magdalene. That's it. What you just read, that's it. Okay. Uh, Let me share with you, however, and here's a however, Desire of Ages makes an interesting point about Mary 
of Bethany and Mary Magdalene. And I want you to have these words in your study guide. I want to read them to you. This classic on the life of Jesus, Desire of Ages. Notice the identification. Watch this. Now, this is fascinating. Mary, and I put in brackets there so that you can know of whom Desire of Ages is speaking. That's the sister of Mary, uh, a sister rather, of Martha and Lazarus in Bethany. All right? Remember Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? Nod your head if you do. Come on. I need to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you remember. All right. So that's the Mary. Mary had been, oh, hold this. Mary had been looked upon as a great sinner, but Christ knew the circumstances that had shaped her life. He might have extinguished every spark of hope in her soul, but he did not. It was he who had uplifted her from despair and ruin. Now watch this. Seven times, Mary, the sister of Martha, seven times she had heard his rebuke of the demons that controlled her heart and mind. Of whom does that speak? That's obviously Mary Magdalene. She had heard his strong cries to the Father in her behalf. She knew how offensive his sin to his unsullied purity. And in his strength she had overcome. Now hold on. It was Mary who sat at his feet. You remember Martha? Where's Martha? She's getting the cottage cheese roast ready, right? So she's in the kitchen. She cannot come out and she's getting tipped. How come I'm back here getting this big meal together? And where's my sister? That girl, where? Oh, she's at Jesus' feet. That's the Mary we're talking about now. See? Mary... It was Mary who sat at his feet and learned of him. It was Mary, also of Bethany, who poured upon his head the precious anointing oil and bathed his feet with her tears. Mary stood beside the cross. Well, we know that's true of Mary Magdalene, at least. And followed him to the sepulcher. That would be true of Mary Magdalene. Mary was the first at the tomb after his resurrection. That's true of Mary Magdalene. And it was Mary who first proclaimed a risen Savior. That's Mary Magdalene. I tell you what, you can see that... In that one paragraph, the identification of these two Marys, they're the same woman. Which would lead us to quietly, would lead the reader to quietly surmise that the young sister of Martha and Lazarus had fallen into sin. So shamed because of what she had done. And by the way, Desire of Ages tells us that it was her uncle Simon the Pharisee who caused her, who led her into sin. So shame was she, besmirching the family name, that she fled Bethany to another little village called Magdala. And there, in that little village, her life spiraled into a moral freefall until she met this Jesus who became her liberator, who, casted, who, who casting out seven times He cast out the demonic hold that enslaved her heart. Now, I want to ask you a question. It's almost sacrilegious, it feels like, to even ask this question. Speaking of Mary Magdalene, Mary Bethany, would this Mary have married the one who, knowing the dark secrets of her life, had delivered her from demonic enslavement? Can you even, can you even fathom it? Ah, of course not. Seems sacrilegious, doesn't it, to even suggest it? The point, and here's the, here's the point, ladies and gentlemen, please get it down. There is no biblical evidence corroborating the Da Vinci Code's claim that Jesus married Mary Magdalene. No evidence. Not in the Bible. And by the way, you cannot argue from silence as Dan Brown appeals for us to do. Let me put Dan Brown's, the writer of the book, let me put his words on the screen here. If Jesus were not married, at least one of the Bible Gospels would have mentioned it. Ah, come on. Lee Strobel says, hey, let's just flip this around. Let's, 
Let's, you want to argue from silence? Then let's argue from silence. Let's argue from silence that's saying, because it doesn't say a word about him being married, therefore he wasn't married. In fact, let's put this verse on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. Paul is saying, hey guys, don't give me a hard time about not being married. I mean, look, I could be married if I want to. Don't I have a right to be married? Watch Paul now making a defense. Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us? Paul was single. Don't we have a right, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas or Peter? That would have been the perfect spot if Paul had known Jesus was married for him to say, and by the way, didn't the Lord himself look at He had a wife. Why can't I? Silence. You see, Dan Brown apparently is not aware of the historical evidence that there were major prophets in Israel who remained unmarried in single-minded devotion to God. Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Paul, and the list can go on. The Messiah's choice to live a celibate life in undistracted devotion to His divine mission is entirely justifiable and I say utterly logical. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, may I reiterate it? There is not a shred of biblical evidence that Jesus married anybody, let alone Mary Magdalene. All right, question number two. Let's go. Question number two. Oh, but what about... Hey, doesn't Dan Brown talk about these other Gospels that were kept out of the New Testament canon by Constantine? Oh, he does. That's a two-headed question, by the way, and both heads are wrong. But since Dan Brown has raised it, let's, let's tackle it. Keep your pen moving now. Number one, Emperor Constantine kept no Gospels out of, the New, out of the New Testament, simply because the New Testament canon had already been essentially formed by the early 300s A.D. By the early 300s. All right? And number two... Dan Brown's claim that there were 80 other Gospels competing for a place in the New Testament is fictitious. Keep writing. The Christian community before the turn of the first century settled on the reliable eyewitness accounts of four. Write it down. Four Gospels. Now, it's true. During the next two centuries, the 100s and the 200s A.D., apocryphal writings on the life of Jesus appeared that claimed to be authentic by attaching... Famous names from the first century to them to make them more credible. And so you have the Gospel of Philip and you have the Gospel of Thomas. And yes, you have the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. However, the Christian community never accepted those apocryphal writings as authoritative eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. They never made it. The community knew somebody's up to something. Smell a little fishy here. The community said, nope. Lee Strobel interviewed... A New Testament scholar named Scott McKnight. He teaches over here at Chicago's North Park University. By the way, I saw him, just happened to turn on Channel 46 uh, yesterday, and I saw Scott McKnight interviewed right down here on the channel that carries our, our telecast to Michiana. And he used the same language he's going to use right here, as you're going to see in a moment. This, this man has written ten books. He's become an authority on the historical Christ. Strobel interviews him. I want to show you the words on the screen. You also have, no, you don't, you don't have these in your study guide. Now, here's Scott, Scott McKnight. This is embarrassing. Speaking of this claim, 
This is a howler. And I heard him use that word yesterday, so he likes the word howler. This is a howler on the part of Dan Brown. Constantine had nothing whatsoever to do with the decision of which books are included in the New Testament. The decision was made far earlier than Constantine, even though it was a long process that, was, that wasn't actually finally determined until about 50 years after Constantine. But the four Gospels that we have today were in use from the first century. They are the only Gospels that all Christians use from the beginning. End quote. All right. Question number three. Five questions. Let's deal with them. Question number three. Ah, but what about Da Vinci secretly painting Mary Magdalene into his famous The Last Supper painting? That's, that's uh, Dan Brown's claim. Let's put The Last Supper painting on the screen. I want you to look at that. I'm going to talk about it now. You keep your eyes on that screen for a moment. You're watching on TV. Do the same. Uh, Greg Constantine, who is artist in resident and art historian here at Andrews University, gave me a tutorial about this painting. He calls this painting, next to Da Vinci's Mona Lisa, the most famous artwork on earth. So this is number two. Mona Lisa would be one. This is number two. This is the Last Supper. Greg told me, and I've seen it hanging there in Milan. Greg told me that when you compare Da Vinci's The Last Supper with earlier artists' renditions of the upper room, upper room scene, artists such as Castagno and Ghirlandio, what becomes immediately evident is the early artists all painted the disciples' faces looking alike. Now, I want you to look at this. Notice the meticulous detail that Leonardo da Vinci, who says, I'm not going to be like the other artists. I'm going to do this right. And he paints different personal characteristics, researched and then painted. And by the way, there are only 13 places around that table. There's not a little 14th slipped in. Nope, there's only 13. All 12 disciples plus Jesus. But you see, Dan Brown says, Ah, but look at the disciple who's close to Jesus. That is a woman if I ever saw one. Now, we've enlarged it for you. Can you see that? You're right. It does look effeminate. You know who that is? That's a no-brainer if you know the 12 disciples. Who would that be? Who's the kid in the... Who's John Boy? No, that's who it is. It's John Boy. Huh? So there he is. And he often is portrayed with effeminate uh, uh, characteristics. And as a boy, you know, hadn't started shaving yet. What's wrong with that? Ah, uh, Mr. Brown, Mr. Brown, you didn't do your research. Because, in fact, Leonardo da Vinci left notes of, on the sketches which preceded the painting. And the notes say, John... Now, I'm going to quote Greg. I'm going to quote Greg. Where do I have it? Right here. Here it is. This is Greg Constantine. There is no way Da Vinci was trying to disguise Mary Magdalene about that table. Dan Brown's claim is a total fabrication. End quote. The whole art, art world would rise up and say, Amen, that's the truth. Okay, question number four. There are five of these. Here's number four. Whoa, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. What about the secretive priory of Sion that was raised up to protect the secret of Jesus and Mary Magdalene's marriage? Here, either Dan Brown oversteps himself and is duped, or he purposefully perpetrates an absolute falsehood. I want to show you page one of his book. This is page one. A direct quote. You have it in your study guide. We'll put it up here. Page one. At the top of page one, this is, this is the paragraph, and it begins with all caps. Fact. Okay? So whatever else you think about this book, here are the facts. Okay? So that's what you would assume, wouldn't you, as a reader? Fact. Now let me read it with you. The Priory of Sion, 
a European secret society founded in 1099, note that date, is a real organization, Dan Brown is telling all his readers. In 1975, Paris's Bibliothèque Nationale, or the National Library, discovered parchments known as Les Dossiers Secrets, the secret documents, identifying numerous members of the Priory of Sion, including Sir Isaac Newton, Sandro Botticelli, Victor Hugo, and Leonardo da Vinci. All descriptions of artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate. Those are his words. Okay, end quote. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I will repeat, either this is a masterful sleight of hand, getting the reader to to conclude that since all the artwork is true and all the architecture is accurate, therefore the Priory of Sion must be a reality too. Or, Brown was hoodwinked by history. A little bit of sleuthing has been done, and in the May issue of Citizen Magazine, which I got, I tore out also a Lee Strobel interview. Let me put it on the screen. You have the words in your study guide. Actually, actually, the Priory of Sion was founded in 1956 to campaign for low-income housing in France. One of its leaders, a convicted con man named Pierre Plantard, fabricated a phony history for the organization and planted these forged documents in the French library. Among other claims, the fraudulent documents said Plantard was a descendant of Jesus. What Brown fails to tell his readers is that Plantard admitted the entire fraud under oath prior to his death. End quote. It was all a fake. Either Brown fell for it, or he knowingly slipped it in and packaged it as true. Now, before I read question five, I got a note from one of our worshipers after First Church. I want to read the note to you. One of our worshipers here. Dear Pastor, Dan Brown wrote the Da Vinci Code as a fictional story. On the binding of the book, it says a novel. Absolutely right, by the way. You might want to remember that, says this writer to me. It's a writer or writers that write stories. I read the book, all of his books. I liked the books and learned stuff about history. But I knew that it's fiction. Have you read the book? I'm 17. And can grasp the fiction. How about you? Well, thank you. Good point. I decided to save the note to this point right here. Because, because, it's, 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 the individual is making a very significant point. This individual, she or he, says, hey, I've read historical novels before. I learned from historical novels. You know what? I've read historical novels too. One of our own writers in this congregation wrote a book on the, on the life of Joseph. It's just called Joseph, Terry Fivash. That story has been embellished and it has been enlarged and it's one of the greatest renditions of Joseph I've ever read. And it's absolutely true to history, but she fills in all the blank spots with what is her right to imagine it could have been this way. But the historical framework is solid. Leona Rounding, one of our specialists in ancient languages, read the manuscript and she said, Oh boy, this is right on. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, when you pick up an historical novel, 
You believe that the framework is all true. It, history has been storyized so that you can get through it a little more palatably than that old dry textbook you had in college. That's the point. Dan Brown, bless his soul, has made the reader to believe that the Da Vinci Code is an historical novel. And he does it with page one saying, these are the facts. We just found out that what he says even are the facts are not factual. So that the reader, and most readers are unsuspecting, they read the whole book and they say, well, you know, this is a historical novel. Most of this is true. I know the characters have changed and the dialogue and all, but the rest of this is true. You know what? Dan Brown has written pure fiction and propped it up with a few little examples of history. And the readers simply don't know that. Hence the conundrum today and why people are coming to Christians and saying, you've got to be kidding me. I always suspe suspected something about organized religion. I figured you guys were up to no good. See? Because the book proffers itself as an, an historical novel. It is not. It's fiction. The, the young writer is right. It is fiction almost all the way through. Question number five, final question. How should we respond to those who believe Dan Brown's assertion that Jesus was not divine? Clearly, ladies and gentlemen, herein lies the Da Vinci Code's greatest challenge to the Christian faith. No question right here. Jesus is not divine. That is Dan Brown's point. In a clever blend of fact and fiction, Dan Brown appeals to the historic Council of Nicaea. In 325 A.D., and by the way, there really was a Council of Nicaea in 325, and Constantine the Emperor really did call it, as Dan Brown uh, suggests. But Brown revises history by this observation from one of his fictional characters, the royal historian Sir Lee Teabing. Okay, that's a character in the story. Sir Teabing makes this point, and I'll put it on the screen here. Until that moment in history, that would be Nicaea, 325 A.D. Until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet. A great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal, end quote. I tell you what, folks, the Da Vinci Code is crystal clear. In its claim that while Jesus was, and let me quote T. Bing again, while Jesus was a historical figure of staggering influence, perhaps the most enigmatic and an inspirational leader the world has ever seen, Brown's point is he simply was not divine. And Brown instead asserts that it was a power-grabbing move by Constantine and the bishops of the church that upgraded the status of Jesus to deity in order to blot out the truth that Jesus had ever been married to Mary Magdalene and how he had intended her to provide matriarchal leadership for this community he had formed. By elevating Jesus to deity, so this fiction reasons, the church could enforce celibacy, thus consult... Because Jesus was divine. He was never married. So neither should we be. The church could then consolidate the power into the hands of an all-male leadership, thus eliminating what Brown calls the sacred feminine core of Christianity. It should have had a feminine core, is Brown's supposition. Can you imagine that? 46 million copies of that assertion about Jesus. Ah, what do we do with it? How should an intelligent Christian, how will you respond to the seismic cultural and theological challenge to, to Christ's divinity. Let me close with these two. I'll give you two, two suggestions. Number one, please, jot it down. Share the truth. 
about history. There is truth. Any library will give it to you. Number one, share the truth about history. Fact. Okay, let me just run some facts by you. Fact. There really was a council of Nicaea convened by Constantine in 325 A.D. Fact. The bishops of the church did gather to deliberate the truth about Jesus' divinity. Fact. But they did so because of the challenge that an errant priest living in Alexandria, Egypt, named Arius, was making, declaring that Jesus was not divine, but rather begotten, begun and created by God somewhere in the eons past. Fact. The Council of Nicaea did vote the Nicene Creed. It's a great confessional creed. You have it in your study guide? We'll put it on the screen. We believe in one God, Father Almighty, the maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God, God from God, light from light, life from life, only begotten Son, firstborn of all creation, before all the ages, end quote. But the Nicene Creed hardly proved the divinity of Jesus. It simply reaffirmed what the church for almost three centuries previous had already been confessing, that indeed Jesus was God. Let me put this little checklist from the New Testament. Come on. What do you have? Thomas, eight days after the resurrection, he falls at the knees of Jesus and he says, My God, my Lord and my God. Now, that is about as confessional as it gets. What do we have? We have the indefatigable testimony of the church in Acts where they call him Lord. The Greek word kyrios for Lord was assigned to divine beings. Lord, 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 Lord. We have the soaring majesty of Paul's theological development. Look, at you got Philippians 2, verse, verse 5. How does, you remember this one? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be what? To be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking upon him the form of a servant. And was found in the likeness of man and being fashioned as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I tell you, you can't get how anybody could say it wasn't there. It just wasn't there in the first century. And then you have the, this, this stunning prologue to the Gospel of John. In fact, I want to read these words out loud with you. Let's read them in the King James Let a little bit of the majesty come through here. Read these out loud with me, please. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Ladies and gentlemen, may I remind you that the first generation of Christians on earth was martyred for that truth. Stephen, James, Peter, Paul... Andrew, Thomas, and the list goes on and on. As C.S. Lewis has noted, men may die for a lie they mistakenly believe in, but no man will give his life for that which he knows is false. Dan Brown, I dare say, would not die for the premise of his fiction. But one of the most compelling evidences 
for the divinity of Christ, take a look at that screen, was the unrelenting witness of the eyewitnesses who declared that Jesus had risen and ascended back to heaven, a witness for which they went to their deaths. And how shall a Christian believer respond today to this seismic cultural theological challenge embedded in the Da Vinci Code? Number one, share the truth about history. And finally, number two, share the truth about his story. His story in your life. Because there is no more convincing and persuasive evidence for the divinity of Jesus Christ than a life that has been supernaturally transformed by Jesus. I want to close with a story. A friend of mine, Ron Cluzet, shared this with me. And it's a story about a friend of his named Henry. Henry lived the high life in the fast track, working hard through the day and partying long through the night. But one day when Henry was sober, a friend of his told him about Jesus. And through that miracle called conversion, Henry accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. Henry debated about whether to hang with his old gang of hardy party buddies. Jesus had come into Henry's life and had changed his tastes, his ambitions, his values, his very core being. But he loved his friends and he longed for that transforming power to be in their lives too. And so Henry continued to be friends with them and though he no longer drank or partied the ways they had been used to before. And then along comes Super Bowl Sunday. And Henry's invited to join the old gang around a big screen TV. <laughs> the alcohol flowed and the air was blue with cigarette smoke. When suddenly one of the friends of Henry spotted that ubiquitous sign in the Super Bowl crowd you've seen at any major sporting event. There it is. John 3.16. And the friend just kind of mouthed it out loud. John 3.16. What in the world does that mean? Nobody in the room knew, of course, except for Henry. Henry finally mustered up his courage and quietly answered, That says John 3.16. And it's a verse from the Bible. The whole room went quiet. One of his buddies reached over and hit the mute button and then looked at Henry. You've told us what it says, Henry. Now, would you mind telling us what it means? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. When history and his story have happened to you, I want to tell you something, my friend. Your life becomes the most compelling evidence that the Da Vinci Code is wrong and that indeed Jesus Christ is God. Evidence so powerful that not even 46 million books can blot it out. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, may the evidence of the divine Christ be seen in me. May the evidence of the divine Christ be seen in us so that the world will know and in knowing Him might find the truth of this same Jesus 
a truth that with it brings the gift of life eternal. Amen.